And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. In, uh, in the year 578, uh, a woman who was a princess from France, whose name was Bertha, moved to Canterbury to marry the English king Ethelbert. Great name, Ethelbert. And uh, Christianity was not yet established in Britain, and Ethelbert was a, a pagan king, but his new bride, Bertha, had a strong Christian faith. And so Ethelbert restored for his wife uh, an old Roman church to be a private chapel for her, and she visited the chapel daily, praying primarily for the conversion of her husband. And for 18 years, for 18 years, Bertha's daily prayers seemingly went unanswered by God. But in 597, a mission sent by Pope Gregory the Great arrived from Rome, and they landed in Kent, and they preached the gospel to many there, including King Ethelbert, who at last acknowledged the sovereign love of Jesus and was converted. And on Christmas Day, 597 AD, there was a mass baptism service, and largely because of Bertha's unceasing prayer, the town of Canterbury became a center for Christianity in England. And to this day, it is the spiritual home for millions of Anglican Christians throughout the world. Now, Bertha left no writings. There's no record of her ever making a public speech or holding any sort of political power. And yet, through her faithfulness and persistence in prayer, she had a huge impact on the evangelization of of England and really of the entire world. And today, her prayer chapel still stands and is recognized as the oldest place of unbroken Christian worship and witness in the world. Bertha likely thought she was just praying for her husband, but the Lord heard her persistent prayers day after day in the chapel, and he used them to do immeasurably more than anything she could have asked or imagined. Prayer changes things. Do you believe that? We'll see. Prayer changes things. We're continuing our series today, A Rule of Life, by looking at the practice of prayer. Prayer is the fundamental rhythm of Christian discipleship. There is no transformation without prayer. There is no spiritual life without prayer. There is no intimacy with God without prayer. You simply must pray. 
You must pray regularly if you wish to know God and God's love. So, the question for all of us is, does the practice of prayer shape our daily lives at all? Greg Peters has written a book called The Monkhood of All Believers. Great title. And uh, he writes often in this book about the Benedictines and their way of life. And one thing he says that strikes me is that the Benedictines are regularly in their various monasteries called to prayer three, well, more than three times a day, regularly throughout their day by a bell. And their rule of life is that no matter what they're doing, no matter where they're going, no matter what was occupying them, they stopped when they heard the bell and went to the chapel to pray. Throughout the scriptural witness and throughout the vast majority of church history, prayer has served as a structural foundation of a rule of life. And I'm not going to say a word today about the how of prayer. That is, what should you do? Where should you go? And exactly what do I say? There's a lot of great resources on that. I'd be happy to point you to some if you would like. What I'm going to focus on from this text is the why. The why of prayer. And um, the context here in Luke 11 that Gabrielle read uh, starts in verse 1 when the disciples hear Jesus pray and then ask him, Jesus, teach us how to do that. Teach us to pray. Jesus' own prayer life was so magnetic and it was so compelling that the disciples wanted to know how to do what he was doing. And interestingly, in response, what does Jesus do? He spends the vast majority of his time talking about who his father is, who they are praying to. Listen, how we pray has a lot less to do with our technique and a lot more to do with who we believe is listening. Jesus goes to the heart of God the Father in this text. And I want to show you three things as we think about our own prayer lives for a rule of life on prayer about God. First, the Father wants you to bother Him. The Father wants you to bother Him. Luke records uh, his own abbreviated version of Jesus's Lord's Prayer in verses 2 through 4. And then he gives this great parable. I love this text in verses 5 through 8. He says, there's this man in bed with his family. He's at midnight. They're in their almost certain one room house, sleeping all together in one bed as families did in the ancient world. And then bang, 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 there's a knock on his door late at night. And his friend is at the door and his friend is asking him for something from outside the home. But I think this is hilarious. He doesn't come with an emergency. He's not saying, my house is on fire, help. He's not saying, my wife is bleeding, help. He's saying, hey, a guy just showed up. I need you to get me three loaves of bread pronto, right? Midnight, and and the guy in the house is in his bed. His whole family's been woken up, and he's like, I'm not getting you bread. Give me a break. Find your own bread. Go home. But look at what Jesus says, verse 8. Because of the visitors, this man's impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I love that word, impudence. That could be translated rudeness impertinence, discourtesy. How many of us hate being interrupted? You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm rudely interrupted. During COVID, a lot of us had to go 
from working in our normal worlds to, to working at home, and we had to deal with interruptions all the time. At least I did. Remember this? There's this viral YouTube clip uh, of a guy who is, you know, some sort of economist talking about world economics, and he's literally like live on TV with CNN or someone like that giving an update. And the door at the back of his office opens, and his little three-year-old toddler walks in and starts dancing around in the background, and she runs up to her dad and starts pulling on his elbow. And then the baby, who's in one of those little baby strollers, on wheels comes whoosh rolling into the room and then the mom lastly comes in running in grabbing the kids trying to pull them out all the while this man is on live national tv trying to work it's hilarious you should google it later it's a great example of what makes this story from jesus so great and so jarring jesus is saying listen God is like the man sleeping in the bed. He is the friend who will rise and give whatever he needs because of your impudence, because of your persistence, because of your shameless prayer requests. God wants you to bother him. God wants you to keep at it, to pray persistently, to pray continually, to ask. And if you don't believe me or this text, there's another one. Later in Luke, Jesus tells another story in Luke 18. He tells a story about a widow who's seeking justice from her king. And she goes before the king every day. And the king is an unjust and wicked man. And he says, I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of my presence. Scram, you're bothering me, right? But the woman keeps coming back and keeps coming back. And in Luke 18, 5, Jesus says this. Where am I? Because, oh no, that's not where I am. Here we go, sorry. Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. How should we pray, the disciples ask? Persistently, shamelessly bother God with your requests, Jesus answers. Then he shifts gears, verse 9 and 10, and gives another very famous analogy. Ask, and it will be given to you, he says. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Think about it. When you knock on a door, you don't just knock once. You don't just go, no one's going to know you're there. Rather, you knock repeatedly until someone opens up or you yell into their little video screen, which is what we do now. Open the door when you lose your car keys or as happens in our house, when you lose the remote control. You don't just look around and say, ah, whatever, I'll find my car keys later. You have to look until you find it. Dogged persistence. Keep seeking. Keep asking. Keep knocking. That's how God wants us to pray. Now, these parables, they're not allegories. In other words, God is not to be seen like some sort of bothered, disgruntled ruler. Rather, the point is that they're a parable with one main point, namely, here's how we should pray. Now, all kinds of questions arise out of this. We'll talk about a few in a minute. But here's the primary thing I want you to hear today. The way we pray stems from who we believe God is. The way we pray comes out of who we believe God is. Can you imagine a Muslim telling someone to pray like this to Allah? Can you imagine a D 
deist who believes God started the world up and then is just sitting back in indifference, telling someone to pray like this, to bother God, to bug him persistently like a little kid. And that gets to the point. This teaching from Jesus, the practice of prayer, only makes sense if you believe the gospel. God in Christ is your loving Father. What do you believe God is like? Jesus does not teach us to pray our judge who art in heaven. Nor does he teach us to pray our creator who art in heaven. Are those things true? Yes. But what does Jesus say? He says, pray our father. Why bother God? Why pray with impudence? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, because you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children, and of children, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Prayer only makes sense if you know you're adopted, as we've already talked about this morning, if you know you're God's little child. Little kids ask for things shamelessly, don't they? don't they? We parents know that's true. Sometimes as kids get older, that changes. Kids begin to ask more reservedly. They'll maybe even say something like, Dad, I know you're probably going to say no, but can I do X, Y, or Z? But when a kid is two, when a kid is three, Dad, 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 can you do this for me? Can you get that for me? Will you help me with this? They persist in prayer because that's what kids do. They know their dad loves them, though they know their dad is there to take care of them. Persistence doesn't mean that we have to bend the arm of a reluctant God into action. We are called into persistence because of God's willingness. We're called to ask without modesty because God gives without modesty. We will never arrive on God's doorstep and find him unprepared or unwilling to answer. It makes sense when you think about it. Uh, Who do you ask for help from the most? I don't know about you, but in my life, it's people that I rely on the most. It's people that I most believe can help me and take care of me. If God is like this, doesn't it make you want to pray more? To pray without ceasing, to pray abundantly, to ask lavishly, and to keep at it. God wants you to bother him. Second, the Father will not deceive you. The Father will not deceive you. Jesus knows that we're going to struggle with this teaching. And there's a lot of reasons why. Um, So he continues by telling us more about God's character in verses 11 through 13. And here's the truth. God is not just wealthy. He's generous. And God is not just powerful. He's kind. That's the message here. God knows what we need and is going to give us what we need because he's our loving father. This is an argument, especially in verse 13, that's very common in the Bible. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, that's the lesser. Isn't it also then true, the greater, that God who is not evil will give good gifts to his children? Now, listen, 
This is really challenging for some of us. It's hard for some of us to believe this for a variety of reasons. For one, we might have spent a lot of time in our lives praying for what we believe are good things, and God has not given them to us yet. This week, I I read a story uh, from a a, a Christian woman named Ashley who who did some teaching on prayer, and, and, and she told about a time when she was in a a local church and the local church was doing an eight-week committed season where everyone was supposed to pray. And and she saw someone else in the church experience uh, healing during this eight-week intensive season of prayer. And so she decided she was going to pray for something that seemed impossible for her. She was going to pray for a reconciliation in her relationship with her mom. Her mom was an addict and they had been uh, separated and and not speaking for a number of years. And so she began to pray and she prayed with great faith and with great energy. And really it was a a spiritually exhilarating time because there was prayer being answered all around her. But after five of the eight weeks had passed, she got a phone call from her dad and her dad told her, hey, your mom has relapsed. And, And she was, of course, devastated by that news. And so she told God, God, I still love you and I'm gonna keep worshiping you but I'm done with prayer because I just can't pour my heart back into something that's that hurtful. Now, many, if not most of us, have had experiences like that. I know some of you are thinking about those sorts of experiences right now as you hear Jesus' teaching on prayer. Jesus' amazing promises about prayer can be painful when we don't have particular prayers answered by God. So what do we do with this? There's, there's a lot I could say. Let me try just to kind of pastor you a little through this. Um, I think one thing we have to do is look back at these verses and listen to Jesus. God is not going to deceive you. God is not out to trick you. Has that ever struck you? These illustrations he gives here, they're not just random, arbitrary illustrations. Jesus says in Matthew, hey, if you ask for a, a, a loaf of bread, God's not, God's not going to give you a rock, a stone. And, you know, a rock and a loaf of bread could be confused for one another on first blush. Jesus says, if you ask for a fish, scaly, God's not going to give you a scaly, oh, this is, a, no, it's a serpent. Ah! God's not going to bait and switch you. He's not going to trick you. He's not going to get you to pray for something and lead you along and then, boom, give you something else. Why? Because Jesus tells us he's a good father. If we as evil sinners are repelled by these kinds of ideas, we can be sure that God is as well. So, how do we explain prayers we have offered that God hasn't answered? I prayed for physical healing to no avail, you may think. I prayed for salvation for my child to no avail. I prayed for restoration in my marriage to no avail. I prayed to no longer struggle with addiction to no avail. I think the key insight, again, is, and I realize this is a complicated matter, but the key insight is to see prayer in terms of family, a familial relationship. God is a father, and and he's going to take care of us and provide for us, and sometimes we're not going to understand what he's doing. Think again about a three-year-old. When we had little babies, two-year-old, three-year-olds, Oftentimes, you know, Marianna would be having a conversation about some issue going on in her life or some decision we need to make, etc. And our two-year-old's looking at us, completely not understanding anything we're talking about. We are utterly incomprehensible to them. 
The things parents do and the decisions they make and the words they say are mystifying to toddlers, aren't they? But the toddler can say, I don't know what they're talking about, but I'm just going to trust that they're my parents and they love me. We are, we are like three-year-olds with God. Sometimes God is going to do things that we cannot possibly comprehend. They're mystifying. We would not have done it if we were in his position, but we're not in his position. We're three. We're not going to get it all the time. His ways are not our ways, and so sometimes we just have to be children and trust. Tim Keller's teaching has helped me so much here. And one thing Tim has said over the years is that God gives you everything you would ask for if you knew everything that he knows. God gives you everything that you would ask for if you knew everything that he knows. In other words, maybe, maybe, If you're a Christian and you're asking for something that God is seemingly refusing to give you, maybe you're asking for a scorpion and you don't know it. Maybe you're asking for a snake and you don't know it. But maybe you're pretty certain that what you're asking for is good. And God hasn't given it. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that we can trust him. And what I do know is that God didn't even answer all of Jesus's prayers. Remember what Jesus prayed? The night before he died, he said, God, he's sweating blood, guys. And he said, let there be another way. Don't make me drink this cup. Silence, mute from heaven. Marianne and I were talking about this yesterday. Marianne said, There's, there are pray- prayers that Jesus made that God still hasn't answered. In John 17, Jesus prayed that his church would be, what, one. Do we see that? No, we don't see that yet. And if God, who I think we can be pretty sure loves Jesus, hasn't yet answered some of Jesus' prayers, we can understand perhaps that when God doesn't answer some of our prayers that we believe very strongly are good and would be good for us, it's not because he's spiteful and vengeful and against us. And there's always resurrection, just like there was for Jesus. So there will be for us. Resurrection is coming. So if you struggle with that, perhaps Jesus' words will help. But others of us struggle for different reasons. Some of you struggle with prayer because you've misapplied good theology. Um, That is, you think that because God is sovereign... And God already knows everything that's going to happen, which is true, by the way. And he's foreordained everything, which is true, by the way, that you shouldn't pray. Because prayer would be futile. God's going to do it anyway. And if that's you, I just want to tell you one Bible verse. James chapter 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. James chapter 5. James, a pretty good theologian, by the way, says, remember Elijah? He prayed fervently. He bothered God that it wouldn't rain, and God listened and granted his prayer, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Listen, the sovereignty of God is not a hindrance to your prayer life. The sovereignty of God is an incentive. It's an incentive to your prayer life. It means that God has the power to answer any request you make of him. But listen, God is not a computer, You don't punch in the correct prompts and out comes the result. God is a father and his heart is impacted and affected by your prayer. And he's invited you 
to co-labor with him in the world. He's given us a direct line to Jesus. Do you believe that? You have a direct line to the one who holds this entire universe together. You have a direct line to the one whose voice calls sheep home. You have a direct line to the voice of the one who raises the dead. Your prayers affect your father's heart. They're not just perfunctory religious observances that God disregards as he charts out his plan for the universe. You live and you move and you have your being, listen, in a real God, in a real relationship who really wants you to ask him for things and then to keep asking and to keep seeking and to keep knocking Again, can I just say, if all this is true, I hope like it did for me this week, it makes you want to pray. To frame our rule of life around time with the Lord, seeking Him and asking Him and trusting Him as a good Father, even when He's completely mystifying to us, which He can be for decades. God is not going to deceive you. Last thing, quick. The Father wants to give you Himself. Jesus tells us um, God wants to give us more than we can imagine in response to our prayers. Now, Luke's version is different than Matthew's version. Matthew, if you go look at Matthew 7, says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, will not also your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Luke must have heard Jesus teach this on another occasion because he records Jesus as saying, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Verse 13, God doesn't just give you blessings. He doesn't just give you stuff. He doesn't just give you provision and protection. God is most interested as a real God, as a relational God, as a personal father in giving you himself. And he has through his spirit. He has poured him into our hearts in Jesus. If we have trusted in Jesus, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells with and in us. So when you pray, you're praying to a God who is willing not only to do things for you, but to give you his own eternal, immeasurable fullness. So much so that Peter can say in 2 Peter 1 that God has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them you may become, listen, partakers of the divine nature. What do you seek that God will not satisfy? What do you want that God will not more than fulfill? Prayer is not just a pathway to God taking care of us. Prayer is a pathway to God, to be in God, to be with God, to be wrapped up in His love. If that's true, don't you want to pray? To orient your entire life around being with your loving Father, knowing that you are His beloved. With Him, the shadows will fade eventually. With Him, the hurts will be healed. With Him, there is always life after death. There is always resurrection after pain. When you pray, say, our Father. And believe it. And like Bertha did 1,500 years ago, keep at it. Ask, seek, knock, and wait to see what he'll do. Let's pray.